0: This morning we'll be reading from Mark 7, have to see first, Mark seven twenty-four 24 through 30. It's on page 935 in this blue Bible that's under your seat or one near you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own or you know somebody that needs it, please, please feel free to take that as our gift to you. Mark seven, twenty four. and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile. A Syro-Phoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, "Let the children be fed first, for is it not right to take? For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs." But well, she answered him, "Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs uh, under the table eat the children's crumbs." And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon was gone.
1: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you, Sue. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning to you. Whatever has you here has been said several times, and you'll probably hear it again in service, we want to extend a welcome from Jesus Christ to you. You know, this uh, church is really simple. We're about the making sense, making much of Jesus Christ and the claims that he makes about not only himself, but of the hope he offers for all of life, a gospel which transforms all of life, and we know that And we deeply believe that everyone who comes here comes in need of that. And uh, I wanna extend that welcome to those who are online as well as in person. And again, say, if you have any questions about something that is said or done in our service or something about our church, generally speaking, or particularly about the claims of Christ, I would love to meet with you. It's one of my, just my most cherished joys. I love hanging out with people after service. I think the signs of a healthy church too is, church in which we gather and hang out after service and talk about these things. And so, friends, uh, again, let me encourage you to reach out to myself or one of the elders before we do so. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 through 30. And I have to tell you, friends, this is a doozy of a passage. I don't know if you noticed as reading uh, reading it today, but we find in this text one of the most offensive statements that I think Jesus has ever said, or at least I would think, I think particularly for our modern times, but I think it would have been offensive in his day as well. And we're gonna look at what the nature of this offense actually is and why Jesus said it. But um, I wanna recognize again that it's normal and common to have people attend a service like this who are in some very different places, spiritually speaking. And some of us feel like we are playing perpetual catch up when it comes to the Bible. There's so much that we're aware of we don't understand, we do not know. I wanna encourage you, if that's you, you're not dumb and you're also not alone. Understanding the Bible, like understanding anything that matters, takes work. It takes time and serious thought. It's one of the reasons there's tremendous value in showing up in service, a worship service like this, Sunday after Sunday, especially for a follower of Jesus. But even as a skeptic or an unbeliever, And it's one of the reasons also that daily study and reading of the Bible, working from front to back, is so necessary as well. But today I have to tell you whether you consider yourself a church person or not, this is one of the great equalizing passages of the Bible because I think most people find this passage to be confusing at the very least and maybe a little disturbing. We find meek and mild Jesus Refusing a desperate mother, but not just apparently refusing a desperate mother, but comparing the woman and her daughter to dogs fighting for scraps of bread. And even when Jesus provides, doesn't it just at least seem, now I don't think this is actually the case, but doesn't it seem that she had to twist his arm to get him to do so? This isn't exactly the top 10 most inspi- inspirational Bible passages, is it? You're not going to see this tweeted out on. Well, I shouldn't say tweet it out on Instagram. That would be wrong. But nonetheless, uh, where, where is my Jesus and what have you done with him? I think some of us might say. This ranks up there with one of the most offensive statements, again, that Jesus has ever made. What are we to do with a passage like this? Well, it's one of the reasons I think it's so valuable for us to work our way passage by passage through the Bible so that we can't just skip over uncomfortable bits like this. But even more so, I think... This passage ends up being terribly significant in understanding the nature, not only of Jesus's mission, but the nature of grace. The grace specifically that is offered in the gospel. And I'm convinced that if we take it seriously together today, even if you still walk away finding this passage a little disturbing, I think you'll see the importance of this grace as well. This morning, we're gonna walk through Mark chapter seven verses 24 through 30, and along the way, I wanna consider several things. I wanna consider why grace is needed, I wanna consider why grace offends, how grace is received, how grace is fulfilled, and some of the implications that it has for us. We're gonna do it, though, in four parts. Grace sought, number two, grace denied, number three, grace tested, and number four, grace applied. Let's begin with the first, grace sought. Let's take a look at our passage and see if we can get some of our bearings. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open. If you do not have one, please take that Bible as a gift to you, the one that's under your seat or in, in front of you, um, and you can find that passage. Again, what was the number somebody shouted out on a blue Bible, what was the page number? 935, thank you. The large numbers are the chapters, the small numbers are the verses. And again, Mark 7, verse 24. Now, up to this point, here's something you need to know, and it's not just an early detail. Jesus has been focusing his ministry primarily in Galilee, and has attracted a pretty pretty extraordinary following there, and increasingly so, uh, quite quite a bit of conflict there as well, both from the Pharisees, but also Herod, the local government. He's making waves and gaining steam in these Gennesaret plains, but then... For some reason that Mark doesn't give us, Jesus does something deliberate and very unexpected. Almost all of Jesus' ministry took place, you see, within the traditional borders of Israel, in areas dominated by the Jews, for reasons we're going to get to in a second. But in verse 24, Mark tells us that Jesus decisively sets out with his disciples beyond them, leaving the borders of Israel behind for Gentile territory. But not just Gentile territory, a word again meaning a non-Jewish person. Mark tells us this is the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now something you need to know about this region is that it had a long and painful history with Israel. In centuries past, this area was where their most infamous queen had been born, Jezebel. And like Jezebel, this region had continued to have a reputation not just for extreme paganism, but for systematic oppression of the Jewish people. During the Maccabean Revolt, for instance, just a few hundred years prior to this, Tyre joined with the Seleucids in fighting back the Jewish freedom fighters, desperate for independence. And it seems that in Jesus' day, the residents of Tyre were responsible still for extorting the people of Galilee on a daily basis where Jesus was ministering. Ironically, in the very place that he is feeding the 5,000 out in the wilderness there, that same area was being denied of bread from Rome. Often it would seem by those in Tyre who received those provisions but then hoarded them, leaving the Galileans hungry. In other words, the Relationship was not good between the two of them for many reasons and not just ethnic. It's no wonder that Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, calls the notorious people of Tyre our bitterest enemies. And it would have come as no surprise to the disciples then that Jesus, go, when he goes there, not only goes there but goes into hiding. Do you notice that? He goes into a home not wanting to be found out, at least it would seem. We have to ask though, why in the world was Jesus here? No self-respecting Jewish man would head out here unless he had to. At the very least, we have to say it's because Jesus wants to invest a bit more fully in his disciples. Along the way, the disciples aren't exactly the um, experts when it comes to understanding his ministry. They seem like five, 15 steps behind. There are many things they still don't understand about his nature and mission, and Jesus needs to teach them even more fully. And we're going to see that today, some things that they do not understand. But still, that doesn't understand why he is here of all places, why he is deliberately set out here for of all places. And we're going to have to hold that question for just a second. Now, so often when Jesus withdraws, it's not long before he is found out in the gospel of Mark. It's almost hilarious. He He goes and seeks to get rest with his disciples and crowds come chasing him down. He goes to pray in the wilderness and the disciples come hunting him. And here now he is found out in this home. Even here he has gained a reputation in Tyre and Sidon. As a miracle worker maybe, if nothing else, and it seems within the moments of their arrival, someone came knocking at the door of where they're staying. Well, not so much knocking as she comes weeping and falling before his feet, a desperate mother begging Jesus for the stability and safety of her daughter who was possessed by a demon. Now something similar to this had taken place in Mark chapter 5, an equally desperate parent, a man named Jairus whose daughter was dying, who who also fell at Jesus' feet, begging for the life of his little girl. But this isn't Jairus. Jairus was an influential Jew. He was called the president of the local synagogue. He was a Jewish man of particular importance and particular religious seriousness. But this was an unnamed Gentile, a Syrophoenician, no less. Jairus would have been a God-fearer of some standing. She was an unclean, Greek-speaking pagan. He was a friend, at least most of have considered him to be. So she would have been regarded a bitter enemy, All we know about this woman, in fact, and Mark is clear to give us, is the background that disqualifies her. And yet, here we find her, shattering their privacy, desperate and weeping, brash and disruptive, begging grace from the healer for her little girl. But none of this is as surprising as Jesus' response, is it? Let's look at verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I'm not going to lie, this is a hard saying. It doesn't seem to match everything we have seen about Jesus up to this point. You know, Jesus has been called an extremist already, but it's normally his compassion that's getting him into trouble. Pursuing the sinners, the social outcasts, the unclean, even when it cost him his reputation. In fact, in the passage prior to this, Jesus insisted on redefining ceremonial boundaries among his fellow Jews. How can this be the same Jesus then? Comparing not just this woman, but her daughter to dogs begging for these scraps. In our modern years, especially in this current cultural climate, it's easy to hear these words not just as horribly insensitive, but even explicitly sexist or racist. I mean, as I heard another pastor put it, isn't it good that uh, Peter wasn't live tweeting this whole thing? Can you imagine what the responses Jesus would have gotten? It's no wonder some have tried to soften the language here, claiming that Jesus was actually using an endearing term, like you might use for a puppy that you'd hold into your arms. Only Jewish people didn't really have dogs as pets, as puppies as you might. It can't really be softened, not completely. The image of a God is never really used in a positive way in the Bible, especially for a Gentile. Even this, if this is a household pet, you can't take the edge off the statement, It's off-putting, and more importantly, I think Jesus means for it to be. So I don't think that we can say that this represents some deep-seated racism or sexism on Jesus' part. First of all, according to the Gospels, Jesus isn't some man who tried really hard and yet maintained the same prejudices that we experience. No, no, according to the Gospels, this is God in human flesh the God who reveals himself to be a God of steadfast love, free of partiality, but also the creator of men and women of all ethnicities and backgrounds, creating them equally valuable, with equal dignity being made in his image. But even if you were to leave all of this aside, Even secular scholars comment on how pro-women Jesus is in the Gospels, demonstrating radical grace to women throughout his life, even giving women the privilege of being the first witnesses of his resurrection. It's one of the things that would have actually made the Gospels so surprisingly offensive during their time. Add to that, Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, lists not one, but two significant Gentile women Rahab and Ruth, as being in Jesus's genealogy, not as a point of shame, but as a point of pride, women who were pillars of faith, as this woman, I think, turns out to be. So as jarring as this statement would have been, the woman still demonstrates no anger or sense that she she has been sinned against. So what's the point here? Well, instead of hearing this in sexist, and racist terms, I think we need to hear this in theological terms. And I think that's where we get to the real offense of this passage. I think the statement is meant to be edgy and off-putting, but the offense has less to do with the statement itself than what it reveals about the nature of grace. So let's take a closer look at Jesus' parable, if you will, and at grace denied. Okay, so to understand who the dogs are here, to use the illustration of the parable, we need to understand first the subject, the main subject of the parable, the children. You see, one of the things we need to know about the rescue plan which ties the Bible together, the story underneath all the other stories is how closely, particularly in the Old Testament, it was linked with the Jewish people. It was to this people that God's original promises, his covenants, were made to make of them a people for his own possession, and through them to bless the world. We're going to get to this more in a second. I need to say, as a brief comment, as a side, this is not a sermon meant to be on our current geopolitical conflicts, okay? We're not going to get into that today. I realize, even especially this week, these, some questions, um, particularly about the um, conflicts taking place in the Middle East right now are pressing, but we're not going to get those today. If you want to talk through some of those things, you can. more than welcome to grab one of the pastors after service. We have other things we need to do today. This is not meant to be a political commentary. Nonetheless, Jesus understands his primary mission leading up to the cross is to the Jewish people. Matthew 5 tells us in this same, we're uh, counting the same event in verse 24. I was sent, Jesus is speaking here, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, he is saying, my mission is to the Jews, not the Gentiles. I have promises to fulfill to them. My very mission, the very mission I have been given from God is contingent upon it. The bread I have is to give to the children first, not the dogs. It's a scandalous statement to be certain, but perhaps more so than we realized. After all, what this statement reminds us is of something very important to the nature of grace, that grace is fundamentally an undeserved thing. Now, I don't know many who would disagree with this. If you asked somebody to explain what is grace, they would say, it's getting something I don't deserve. It's like a gift at Christmas think about those words at an amazing grace. Okay, what's the first words of amazing grace? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, right? Not a lovely good boy like me, right? This is saved a wretch like me. The basic nature of grace is that it is undeserved. However, if that is true then, that means that grace also is not something that can be demanded. If it could, it wouldn't be grace, right? It would be yet another thing I have worked hard to achieve and felt I deserved, which turns out, I have to tell you, how many of us see grace practically. Grace is not something I can presume to have or feel entitled to, and there is nothing that will quite test our awareness of this fact than being denied it. I have, uh, unfortunately, as a professor, um, encountered cheating every single semester. <laughs> Even this last semester, I was telling Grace, I think, I, 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 was, I was thinking that very day, I was praising God, God, I'm so grateful I haven't had to deal with any cheating. No kidding, five minutes later, I found not one but two students who I had to confront, confront. And unfortunately, in cheating, when I'll give, I'm somebody who is more prone to grace in these circumstances, except for when I experience a student who feels they're entitled to it. There's nothing quite as frustrating or unattractive to us, I think, than a sense of entitlement. If you're a parent, you ever experienced this? And yet I find that many of us, including myself, can be spiritually entitled, if you will. You see, spiritual entitlement is this belief, even the unconscious belief, that God owes me certain things, that he ought to answer certain prayers, that he ought to bless me for the good things that I have done. The problem is, when God doesn't, when God denies me what I thought he owed me, When life goes wrong or doesn't go the way I expect it should, it surfaces all kinds of jealousy and resentment. It prevents me also from being truly grateful for anything that I have, because of course this makes sense for someone like me. And it prevents me also from being generous with others. Spiritual entitlement makes us into ugly people who actually never can truly be happy with anything. In fact, for a spiritually entitled person, normal loss and pain becomes more than just disorienting and difficult. They shake the very foundations of our faith. In fact, sometimes all it takes for a spiritually entitled person, even one that has grown up their entire life around Christianity, sometimes all it takes for them to leave Christian faith behind is something as simple as an unanswered prayer. And I don't mean all of this to be dismissive, especially if, um, I, I don't want to assume what you have experienced or lost, or the questions that your losses have brought up. But the reality is, grace is not something that can be demanded or earned. It is not something we're entitled to. God is not a vending machine. We cannot rack up IOUs against him. Your obedience does not do God any favors. In fact, it is entirely possible, just looking at my own life, to do many right things for the wrong reasons, specifically as an attempt to save myself, a desperate attempt even to control God. One of the prerequisites Jesus speaks of in experiencing grace The grace that he offers is what he calls, in other passages, specifically in the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit. The awareness that God, according to his word, apart from his grace, we are not the healthy but the sick. We are not friends of God but enemies. We are not searching for God, each of us, in our own way, but inventing new ways to reject him. According to the Bible, according to Jesus, we are all, each and every one of us, so sinful, so morally bankrupt, so lost in our own sin that only the free grace of God could possibly save us. This sense is a necessary prerequisite to receiving God's grace. Now I realize some of us find these doctrines too harsh, more harsh even than being called a dog, It could have been that we have worked our whole lives to get God on our side, or we figure simply it's God's job, after all, to be loving and forgiving. The result is the same. Instead of being poor in spirit, we become, and I love this, as Timothy Keller puts it, middle class in spirit. Believing that we have earned a certain standing with God through our hard work That the success and the resources we have are primarily due to our own industry and energy. We become not poor in spirit, but middle class in spirit. As David Garland points out, no one likes being called hypocrites, an an evil generation, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, foxes or dogs. We might say, if that's the way he feels, I will never come to that God for help. And surely that's how many responded to Jesus himself. After all, this isn't the only offensive statement he makes. But in doing so, this kind of middle-class spirit, this kind of spiritual entitlement, do you know what keeps us from the things that we need most? It keeps us from experiencing grace. Why? Well, as David Garland, Garland goes on, our pride, it's because our pride kicks in and keeps us from ever asking for help again. When we hear these hard statements from God, we will turn to gods of our own making who will not offend us because we convince ourselves that we are special and truly worthy of God's grace and help. Only when we are truly desperate are we willing to do anything it takes, including humbling ourselves to find God's help. So why isn't Jesus more sensitive here? Why doesn't he make it easier on her? Well, I think Jesus is showing us just how much we need the gospel to humiliate our pretensions. I think he is showing us how much we need the gospel to deflate our spiritual entitlement. It's why I think Jesus seems to insist on throwing stumbling blocks in our way, after all, he openly calls the Pharisees hypocrites and mocks their prized traditions. He risks insulting now a Gentile woman by comparing her to a dog. And the many, many of the things that the Bible will have to say about our spiritual status will be equally offensive. But if, I mean, can I, can I put this bluntly? So what? I was offended at the number my tax guy gave me this last week about how much I owed. You might be offended at your doctor who says you could stand to lose a few pounds. It doesn't particularly matter if we are offended by the gospel. It matters if it's true. And what if the scandalous offense of grace is finally what gets our attention? In other words, we need Jesus to be blunt with us too especially if our pretensions, our spiritual entitlement, our middle-class spirit separate us from the grace that we need. Then let's consider the woman's response, which is brilliant. And number three, grace tested. I want us to read verse 28 again. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, which I have to comment here, is the only time Jesus is ever addressed as Lord in Mark's gospel. It's fascinating. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Okay, so many of us hate entitlement. You know what's enormously attractive? Humility. You know what's enormously attractive? Humility. After, this is exactly, I think, what the woman demonstrates here. You want to I want you to notice how remarkable this statement is. After all, how many of us would respond this way if we were in her shoes? If God said similar things to us? If he seemed to deny us? We would say probably, but but what about, I mean, have you seen this? God, don't, I've scratched your back for long enough. Surely you can stand to scratch mine. We might finally turn and say, well, forget you. Let's see if I ever come to you for anything ever again. But she doesn't. No, she doesn't dismiss Jesus or get offended. There is no sense of bitterness, denials, or demands. Rather, she considers Jesus' words, and then she enters and embraces the parable. He has set the terms, and what does she do? She accepts them. Garland points out, the woman's attitude in in the face of refusal is the key to this passage. She comes empty-handed and can make no claim. She has no merit, no priority standing, nothing to commend her. Her manner is the opposite of the snippy, you owe me attitude that prevails among so many today. She does not argue that her case is an exception or lobby for special treatment. She does not point out that Jesus is not even in the land of Israel. How could he deprive Jews of bread by helping her? Sometimes. It takes a moment of desperation like she faces to make us humble ourselves to fall on his grace, knowing we're the last to demand it. And in doing so, she proves more humble, more faithful than any of the Jews, the so-called children that Jesus has encountered thus far. That includes the disciples themselves. And yet, she also doesn't make herself a doormat, and this is really important. She doesn't leave with her head in her hands, cowering not just in despair, but in self-loathing. Okay, that is not what the Bible asks of us. That is, not, that is false repentance. It is not a looking inward and convincing of myself of why I am, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm going to go eat some worms. That is not what the Bible means by repentance. It's an old children's song I've quoted a couple times. Nonetheless, That is not what the Bible has to say. In fact, that turns out to be that kind of attitude turns out to be another kind of pride. It doesn't seem like pride, it doesn't smell like pride, but it ends up being just as self-focused as the most kind of egregious arrogance. The Bible actually invites us into something much different, which she demonstrates here. Instead of self-loathing, it seems she sees an invitation left open in Jesus' words, a cracked door in what Jesus has said, specifically in one word in verse 24, first. 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 Sinclair Ferguson points out in his parable when he says, the children receive their bread first. That's the window, that's the crease that she needs. She goes right for it, that first, as if to say, yes, Lord, that's fine. Satisfy them first, I'll take the crumbs, I'll take the leftovers. It was like Jesus said, the children have to be satisfied first, and she responded by saying, so you're saying there's a chance. And this is where her faith, I think, shines. You see, in the face of sin and what our sin deserves, knowing that the only thing we deserved is God's judgment, faith doesn't wallow. Faith presses on, and she presses on, presses in to the hope hidden in the despair, not because of what she sees in herself, but because of something more importantly, she sees in him. What exactly? Well, it's interesting, even as a Gentile pagan, she sees in Jesus' sufficiency, an ability to meet her need, even though it is only a need for healing at this point. The kind of bread, these crumbs she's asking for are simply for a life free of the terror and bitterness and heartbreak of, that the demon has caused her and her daughter. She Still, nonetheless, even with that small thing she's asking, she knows she has nowhere else to go, and and he has what she needs. It's a fascinating level of insight and awareness. Let me ask you, do you see in Jesus the same sufficiency? Do you see in Jesus what you most need, something you cannot get anywhere else, or do you at least functionally, and I'm speaking to Christians like myself, do you at least functionally act as though God really were unnecessary? That Christ might make a useful addition to your life, but not as the Lord of it? This kind of desperation forces her, and I think some here, to see that our attempts at self-salvation, saving ourselves, rescuing ourselves, providing for ourselves, will not work. And surely, in him, he has all that we need. Some of us here, surely some of us have seen that today, but she also sees generosity Yes, his mercy, as the Bible will say, is his to give or to withhold. It cannot be demanded. And he is free to give in whatever order he sees fit to give it, she says. And yet, it's as if she says, I I wonder if there is mercy for me. Again, do you see the same do you not only see in Jesus what you need, but believe that even though He does not owe you, that there is mercy there for someone like you? Or do you see God as stingy with you, that He only helps those who help themselves, acting either as if God owes you or anxiously working as if everything rested upon your shoulders? The woman presses on because she sees both sufficiency and generosity in Jesus and in his statement, she sees an invitation to test his grace. And so she asks, she persists, just like the men digging through the roof to lower their friend to Christ, just like the woman who we've seen in Mark relentlessly pushing through the crowd to touch Jesus' garment, just like the woman in Christ's parable insisting that her unjust judge give her justice. This woman does, does not insist that God owes her, but aware that she does not deserve it, still persists. She asks for a crumb of his power. And notice how then Jesus responds. You can almost imagine a smile coming on his face, the same one who says, I really shouldn't do this, then does it and calls out her statement, but more importantly, the faith within it, and her daughter is healed, immediately healed, without going to the girl in trouble. He he is not limited in his power. He can heal from a distance. It's interesting, though, Jesus only does this, heals from a distance without going to the person in trouble with Gentiles in the Gospels. Isn't that interesting? And in so doing, a a Gentile, a Canaanite, as she is called in Matthew's Gospel, a Syrophoenician woman, how's that for intersectionality, uh, a Gentile of Gentiles becomes a picture of repentant faith which in reality is the only kind of faith there is. You see in the scriptures, repentance and faith are are always a duo. They are a package deal, two sides of a coin. It is impossible to exercise biblical faith, you see, to truly rest in the grace that is found in what Jesus has accomplished through 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 the cross, without also an accompanying, accompanying deep awareness of my need for it. Without a deep awareness that there is no way I could ever save myself. There is no way I could ever demand it. It is impossible to exercise biblical faith without a sense of deep repentance, a change of mind. And yet it is impossible also to truly repent to truly experience the change of mind, of heart, to turn from how I have dealt with my sin to how Jesus deals with my sin without taking God at his word, without saying that they're believing him when he says there is mercy for me, that despite the fact that our sins, as we say, though they are many in our song, his mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. More. It is impossible to experience, to express repentance without resting in that concrete truth, an undeserved reality that there is mercy for someone like me. As Paul would say, even for the chief of sinners, which he counts himself among, I know that there are some here that don't consider themselves to be Christians. And I know some here who have considered themselves to be Christians their whole life and may not be. This is the only way to cr- come to Christ regardless Regardless of past performance, repentant faith is the only way to enjoy this bread, the living bread, the grace of life from Jesus Christ. And if you're here wondering if Christ might have mercy for you, let me encourage you to test it, to persist despite the obstacles of doubt and uncertainty in front of you. Would you take the invitation to test his grace, to doubt your own doubts? This scene turned out to be also very, very important for the early church, including many who, have been, who would have been asking the same question that the woman is asking, wondering to themselves, is there hope for me? After all, perhaps the majority of those reading this in the first century would not have been Jews in Rome where this may have been written, but Gentiles. Some would have been offended by this statement too, particularly the notion of Jewish priority it seems that Paul had to correct that in his book to the Romans where he had to, to correct those who would presume upon God's grace as if they had done somehow better than those who had rejected it. But still others would have been listening with rapt attention saying, what hope do we have to receive grace, let alone offer it to others like this? It turns out great hope. Just like Jesus' statement last week declared all foods clean, this miracle declares that all people may be made clean. And as if to spotlight lists, the passage is sandwiched between two significant miracles, one we're going to get to. One miracle that we've already seen is the feeding of the 5,000. What we're going to see is almost a repeat, you almost wonder if there's deja vu, uh, the feeding of the 4,000. Both are miraculous feedings of Massive crowds on either side of this both begin with hordes of people who come hungry and leave satisfied. Baskets running over with bread because of Jesus who provides. Only one, the first we've seen, takes place in Jewish territory. And do you know where the second takes place? In this same area among Gentiles. It's as if this is in the center of a of a a collection of passages hinting forward at what will become true after Christ, that grace will go to all nations, all tribes, all peoples. It will go absolutely everywhere, offering them the same bread, the same salvation. Yes, first by coming to the Jews, but then going radically everywhere else. The same one who is undeservedly generous with the children will soon be generous with the so-called dogs. In fact, the more you look for this in the Bible, you will see it's always been God's plan, whether it is God's promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 to bless all nations through him, the forefather of the Jews, or David's vision in in, in Psalm 87 of the kingdom of God, in which David himself describes the kingdom of God as gathering people from Egypt and Babylon and Philistia and Tyre, saying they will be numbered among his chosen ones, his Messiah's people, Or, Jesus' words in John 10, that he has sheep, but some sheep that are outside of this fold, sheep outside the Jewish people, who will soon be brought not into a separate flock, but into the same one flock. You see, it is not just that God's grace was, it's not that God's grace was only for the Jews, it was rather first for the Jews. In fact, it was in being faithful to the Jews that a way would be paved for the Gentiles as well. How? As a Jewish Messiah, the mocked and crucified King of the Jews was killed by Jews and Gentiles alike. Only to be raised again that he might become Lord of both Jew and Gentile. That he might deliberately secure those he had chosen for himself from every tribe and nation and nation. Even so, even as God's reasons for mercy are hidden from us, his mercy is not reactionary and random, casting bread to whoever might demand it. It is purposeful and deliberate, purchased at the cost of his blood according to the plan of his Father, that it might be offered not just to some, but to all who seek him through faith. And it's summarized quite wonderfully in Romans one, verse 16, in which Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, notice this, to everyone who believes. That everyone in many ways should be italicized to absolutely anyone. Because he then comments to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Did you hear that? No no distinction, maybe in terms of order and priority. The gospel is the power of salvation, yes, for the Jew, but also salvation for all who believe, for all who would come to their promised Messiah, who would be grafted in to to the natural olive tree, as Paul will put it. He begins with the Jew, but only that even the Greek might taste the bread as well. The barrier-shattering, world-radiating grace of God is pictured in these hard words of Jesus. And yet, I think there's still one more implication we haven't mentioned that we need to before we move on, and that's grace given. See, I have to wonder if Jesus, as he's saying this, does it with a bit of a side-eye at his disciples. After all, I'm convinced that Jesus does not uh, possess a hint of racism or or sexism as his final response to the woman confirms. However, this kind of prejudice would have been all too common in his day. In fact, Matthew tells us that the disciples begged him to send this beggar away from them. They weren't confused by his apparent lack of mercy. It was logical to them. After all, she was a Gentile dog. And yet it's interesting that the Geneva Bible, an English translation of the Bible composed 400 years ago that includes some commentary, adds the comment that Jesus is speaking to the woman according to the opinion of the Jews. In other words, he puts the words of his contemporaries in his own mouth, and in doing so subverts them. And speaking in ways that might seem to hint to prejudice, his actual words unravel the reasons behind prejudice, which is no less common today than it was in the first century. The issues and groups may have changed, but the way that sin affects our hearts does not. You see, the reason people demonstrate prejudice, whether due to someone's race or status or orientation or clothes or education or religion, the reason people don't just size one another up but make sweeping assumptions about what one's skin color or burqa, or bank account, or age, or political party reflects about their character. It actually has a great deal to do with one's own ego. It's easier, you see, to blame, to deal with my own fear, to deal with my own insecurities, if I can just find someone or a group of people to blame it on. Life feels a bit more in control if we can know at a moment's glance who i at a moment's glance on a snap judgment who i can and cannot trust but more importantly we feel better about ourselves and our place in the world if we know who is on the right side because doesn't that mean i i mean sorry who is on the wrong side because doesn't that mean i'm on the right our fears and resentments turn out to become factories for scapegoats and snap judgments it's why people swallow lies about someone's belief and conduct without even realizing it. It's why people are more prone to doubt someone based on their accent or skin color, and it's why they unconsciously collect more and more evidence throughout their life to shore up that distrust. It doesn't even have to be intentional, and it does not relinquish its hold easily. In the late sixteen hundreds, I should say, Morgan Godwin, who was an Anglican uh, missionary, served parishes in Virginia and also on the island of Barbados. I'm mean, sorry, Barbados, only to meet with strong resistance from slave owners when he sought to convert their slaves. You know what they said to him? He wrote that they commonly protested what, such as they? What, those black dogs be made Christians? What, shall they be like us? It's a disgusting thing to hear said. And yet, are we so unlike them? Prejudice didn't die out with the abolition of slavery or the, abo- or the abolition of Jim Crow laws. Pride, pride produces prejudice. It's one of the most common things that it does produce. Pride categorizes people into those who deserve God's grace and my love and those who do not. But the gospel deflates all of this. Not only does the Bible teach that every human life is created with equal dignity and moral value, it teaches that no human being is more deserving of God's grace than another. As the statement goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross and the more we meditate on the undeserved nature of grace, yet has, the fact that it has come to me, the more I preach back at my resentment and my mistrust of others, the more we will find our prejudice begin to melt. Notice again, the woman here does not play into the prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles around her. There is no sense of resentment in the Jewish at the Jewish share of God's blessing, nor does she say ugly things in response to Christ. She knows she comes as an outsider, one who is undeserving, and in so doing, she leaves with more of an understanding of Jesus' mission and his grace than even his disciples. What about you? Are you willing to hear Christ's words to you, even hard words, and will you still seek his grace? Dwight Moody is reported to have said that Jesus sent no one away empty except those who were full of themselves. Will you take that path of repentant faith? Let's pray. Lord, your Father, we come to you as those who um, are undeserving of your grace. Whether we've woken up to that fully or not, and I know that the longer I live, the more I'm seeing the depths of my own sin, what it really cost Christ to save someone like me. But in, in that, there's the opportunity for all of us to see the cross grow in our imagination, to see His mercy be even more than my sin. instead of pretending and performing that we can earn our way into your behavior, I mean, into your favor, through our own behavior or simply demand that it's your job. Lord, we want to hear Christ's harsh words, even to us, that they might catch your attention, make us willing enough to be humble, even to, even to rest and fall upon grace. And I pray that some might today, some who may have never rested upon that grace before. And for those of us who have over time, even as Christian, come to presume that grace, to take advantage of that grace, to assume that it at least makes more sense in my case than it does theirs, would you move us again to repentance and awareness? That we would hate that that kind of pride, that middle-class spirit, that spiritual presumption and entitlement. We would hate it. We would repent of it. We'd bring it straight to the foot of the cross that we might experience fuller and deeper joy. We might remember again what it meant that Christ saved someone like me and that might make us bold and compassionate to extend that same hope to others. The only hope we have for that is the same grace that saved us. And we pray for Christ's sake alone, where that grace is found, amen.